I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm here with the latest Talking Volume show in our fall series. Amor tolls electrified readers worldwide with a gentleman in Moscow. Now he's back and on the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater with the story of two brothers, a road trip that begins in Nebraska, and a terrific story. Keep listening. Here's writer Amor Tolls at the Fitzgerald Theater. Thank you. Wow. They are happy to be here with you. It's great to be here. That is really nice. Well, uh, I want to talk to you about the idea of heroic journeys in myth and literature. Uh, It's a deep well. A lot of writers go to it. Joseph Campbell talked about it. I want to dig into that a little bit. But the idea of the heroic journey, right? The ordinary world, the call to adventure, crossing the threshold. I'd like to know how you thought about the structure of the myth and the journey and the adventure as you, as you conceived of this novel. Okay. Wow. That's a, that's a heavy start. <laughs> right. We might as well so, dig right in, don't you think? So... Uh, and, and, and I guess I should say, as a quick sort of opener, that uh, for me, when I'm... For, I've been writing since I was a kid. And I wrote fiction in high school and in college and in graduate school. And for me, uh, a novel begins as a notion. And uh, over the course of my life, sort of notions present themselves, like a little premise. Like, uh, you know, a, a man gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time, you know? <laughs> And I'm like, you know, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's kind of interesting. And, and, and when that happens, I, I, within minutes, I can t- I, there's a few things I know very quickly. So like in the case of a gentleman in Moscow, I was like, oh, you know, it's going to be in Russia, and he'll be an aristocrat, and he'll be sentenced to house arrest in a fancy hotel. And, you know, and right away, it's going to take 30 years. So in, in the case of the Lincoln Highway, uh, the notion was this image of, I had of this of a young, honorable guy, a young man, who's done some time uh, in a juvenile work camp coming home to the family farm in uh, the Midwest and uh, the warden saying, you've paid your debt to society and you're a good person and what went wrong, you know, those, uh, the reason you went to uh, the juvenile campus for no fault of your own. Uh, and since you've paid your debt to society, it's time to start your life afresh. And then the young man says, that's my intention, warden. And when they arrive, uh, it turns out, when the warden drives away, that two friends from the work camp have hidden in the trunk of the warden's car, and they have a very different sort of vision of what the hero's future should be. And this is the notion I had. And right away, uh, I knew that this story was going to be in the Midwest, that, that our hero would be returning to uh, Nebraska. I knew that while he wanted to go west to start his life fresh, they drag him east to New York, uh, and I knew that the story would take 10 days. And you know, so this all kind of comes to me right off the bat. I know these parameters. But very early on, uh, it, it almost presents itself by that very limited group of facts. Things start to grow out of that. Because it, it is a journey story. I know they're going from the Midwest to New York, and it's going to be in this 10-day trip. And I know they're all about 18 or 19 years old. And so suddenly, without having to make any other decisions, you know, or I know, that the story is going to be a journey not only in geographic sense, but in a life sense, because when you're 18, you're about to enter adulthood, and your whole future is sort of unfurling before you. 
the next step from there is, is again, very straightforward for me, which is that, that the journey story is pretty much as old as storytelling. Right. right? And we go all the way back and... You know, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey is a journey story. And, you know, right. Don Quixote is a journey story. The Aeneid is a journey story. The Bible is jam-packed with journey stories. And so, you know, in the you know, Exodus right there at the beginning. So uh, it seemed very natural that uh, I had this vision that the main character, who's 18, uh, would have an 8-year-old brother. Uh, his uh, mother is long gone. His father has died while he's uh, away. And he's going to have to take care of his younger brother. And that's his main focus. And that the boy would have this book that he was obsessed with, uh, which is Aber, Ab, Abacus Abernathy's <laughs> Compendium of Adventures. Uh, uh, and, uh, and this book would have 26 chapters with 26 heroes in it. And it would be start with Achilles you know, for A, and it would go right down the alphabet uh, you know, to uh, covering different uh, history, uh, historical figures or uh, uh, figures from mythology and history, but, you know, one with the letter A, one with the letter B, one with the letter C. And so all of a sudden, as I say, the mythic content gets, starts getting woven into the narrative uh, very naturally. So, so it is kind of this process. If you start one place and you're adding things to it, and pretty soon you're, you have to include but, but those, mythotic, those mythological stories. Right. I mean, what's remarkable about it is... I, this was intentional, right? I mean, I thought he took all of the elements of the mythic journey and he basically created you know, a contemporary 1950s story with all of those because it just tracks so closely to all those different experiences and chapters. I think that, uh, I think the answer to your question is yes. Maybe this is to a fault, but when I was writing Rules of Civility, uh, you know, about a young woman in 1938 New York, I, I, was, I was aware of the fact that the films of the 30s, which have been a great influence on me, would be heard in that narrative in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that influenced the way the dialogue is, is uh, written in that book to some degree. In this project, yes, I think you're right, that, that knowing that these mythological stories are going to be a component of the narrative itself mm-hmm. and knowing that it is thematically a book about a journey, you can go a step further and say that, well, how do I want the tone of it in some way to capture aspects of those mythological stories? And, and, and what, what are those aspects that are going to include it in what form? And that becomes a question for me that you solve partly through planning but largely through the writing process itself. One of the things that Campbell says about myth is that they basically tell us how to live. They show us that somebody has been on a journey, and this is what they learned about themselves, and this is what they learned about the world. And that that is such a through line in this novel. I mean, these boys are all having experiences with one another and bringing them back to try to figure out how they want to be and who they want to be and how they're going to live. Exactly. And, and the, the way I think about that, or I've come to think about that having finished the book, to tell you the truth, wasn't the plan. It's kind of looking back saying, oh, right. Ah. Uh, but is, uh, I, I think about our, 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 our common experience, you know, uh, which is if we think about our lives between zero and 16, let's say, that during that phase of our lives, we are receiving information all the time from our parents, from school, 
uh, from the church, from the community around us, from culture too. Much of that information that we're receiving from our parents and school and the church and the community is, is about trying to shape who we are, you know, trying to tell us what is right and what is wrong and, and what uh, aspirations we should have and uh, what limits we should have and uh, how we should think about the world around us. And a lot of that also comes in the form of stories. That's the means by which, to some degree, that shaping is taking place. Now, you get to 18, you know, 17, 18, 19, and suddenly we all go through this moment where we're realizing, wait a second, I'm the one who's in charge of defining all these things <laughs> that, you know, that everybody's been so actively trying to define on my behalf. I'm actually in charge of that, and I can decide, you know, who I am and uh, what I want to do with my life. So, what this book is very much about uh, is that moment in the lives of these characters, uh, where the three 18- to 19-year-old boys, there's a 19-year-old young woman, uh, they are at that moment where they've received all these stories and inputs, and they have the models of their parents, but they are feeling the freedom of, and the responsibility of beginning to craft what they want to make of their own lives. And uh, part of, I think, the pleasure for me in, in, in writing the book and hopefully for you in reading the book is that the, these four characters have very different inputs. You know, the kid who grows up on the farm in the Midwest is very different from uh, the you know, second most key character, Duchess, who grows up in lower New York and whose father... Uh, was a Shakespearean, a failed Shakespearean actor who ended up doing Shakespearean monologues on the vaudeville stage and became a drunk and sort of a con man. And Duchess grows up in, a, in that community. So each of the characters kind of have their own framework. I just want to ask you this. Given what you just said about how these boys, what this, is, what this period of their lives is going to mean and how they're going to in t- take in what their father has given them or not. Was it essential that you would remove the parents from <laughs> the stage yeah. to launch this? Why, why, why did that make you laugh? Well, I make it because as I, I, I sort of sketch out right at the beginning, oh, this is what's going to be, you know, these are the characters and mom is long gone, dad's going to die. And I don't really think about it as, you know, exit you know, pursued by a bear, you know, <laughs> parents, you know, but, uh, but, but, but I, it is, but it, you know, it's what's, what's, it was true in rules of civility as well. Yeah. You know, Katie is kind of an orphan in many ways. I mean, her, her mother abandoned her. So I may, I guess I have mother issues, I guess, but, <laughs> but you know, and we can get into that some other time, but, but oh but, no, uh, we'll get into it yeah, tonight. But, but so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Luckily, this radio signal does not reach <laughs> Naples, Florida. <you> know? <laughs> but, uh, so, oh, there's always streaming. Yeah, no, right, exactly, exactly. Right. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> but, okay. uh, so, uh, where was I? You were, <laughs> I, I wondered yes, if you I, had I, I like to... The, I like the orphans. So, so you're right, it, it is, and, and why is that? Um, I, like, I like the fact that these three characters are kind of parentless at this moment in time. And uh, because it emphasizes or exaggerates that, that aspect of being able to, to 
who determine their own okay. future. You know, and and could you do it in a realm where the parents were there chipping in and giving advice and, and wagging their finger? You could, but it, it sort of felt like that would bog the whole thing down. You know what I mean? And so, so like better just to get rid of the parents right off the bat, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and wow. really get the focus on the kids. You know, so so I think that's what happened. I mean, the, this. <laughs> book that I mentioned at the beginning that that you've just described that Billy carries as the boys set out on the on the uh on their journey tells the story of all these mythic heroes none of them women that's right am I right about no, that no, in, in fact the book it's, it's called it's basically an adventure book for boys ah. and so I imagined it in the 1950s that yes it is, it is clearly sexist but it, that's what it you know it, to its time it is a book written for young boys and it is role models for young boys in a 1950s mindset and so they're all male heroes in that case and so many of those heroes as I thought about this are alone in well, the world which is, which is the mythic journey right yes, yeah. it's part of the epic tradition that, that, you know, the, uh, the heroes tend to be alone, even when they're in the company of others. You know, if we think of, of Ulysses, uh, he is isolated from his family. He's trying to get home right. in the Odyssey. He has a whole crew, but it's clearly his problems that we're focused on. And, and the crew is kind of helping at a time, and then they get in his way at a time, and eventually the whole crew dies. My, sorry, that's a spoiler, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you know and, and if you don't know that by now, that's your fault. You know, right. you, you should know that by Call now. It like you we should see know it that here. by now. But but anyway, so you know, yes, you know, uh, Homer's win- he's winnowing away the crew. You know, one problem after another, and the crew's getting smaller and smaller until it's just Ulysses himself. And and I think that yes, that's a part of emphasizing that. Uh, you know, the, that sort of what Aristotle eventually said is sort of an ideal of storytelling. There's something natural, I think, for the way that we take in stories to, to look at a story of an individual. Uh, it's only way easier for us to take it in, to encompass it, to befriend that individual, to, yeah. to feel Good what they're point. going through, to imagine right. the world through their eyes. And it gets harder if it's suddenly, you know, 16 characters on equal footing. I feel like in your different novels, you are working out what nobility is. Yeah, that's, you, that's something that interests me, I guess, yeah. Why? <laughs> that's another good question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that one of the things that interests me, I guess, is, uh, is in the notion of nobility is that there's, um, there, there, there's how we behave towards others and there's doing the right thing and these are different things and uh and i'm very interested in how individuals grapple with that which is you know how do i present myself to the world how do i achieve what i want or what i think i'm capable of or what i think i deserve how do i respond to the needs concerns or demands of others and you know all that stuff is is happening in our lives at all the time and, and it's it's influencing the decisions we're making and what we're saying and who we're hanging out with and all those things are, are happening in very fast pace. And yet, and behind that is, is this constant sort of question of, of are we people who do the right thing? Are we honorable? Are, mm-hmm. and, and do we live up to the best in ourselves? And in motion, it's very hard to monitor that, you know, to, to fulfill it to the best of our abilities and 
to the degree that we might like. There's, we, we have these, these high-minded modalities where we're of, of we, want, we do want to be the best we can be, and we have a vision of what that might mean, and it could be a very intricate one that we could articulate to a friend over dinner. But yes, in the course of life, that is tested by the realities of all these experiences and, emo- and relations and emotions. So you'll know what I mean when I say there there, for me in all of your novels, there is this precarious moment. I was just talking about this with my sister-in-law before we came, because she's reading the book, your new novel right now. There's this precarious moment when we balance on this edge of whether the character is going to live up to what the, the, one of the other characters really needs them to be. And I, I, I found myself um, really holding my breath that those characters would come through and be the person that we, me, and the other character wanted them to be. I just felt like you think about that a lot. Yeah, I think that I, that's, that's very nicely put. I mean, I, I, uh, I appreciate your saying that. And I guess my, my response to that would be um, that you know, if you think of the distance between the classical drama, you know, that Aristotle now analyzes of Sophocles and those guys. And we end up hundreds of years later with Chekhov short stories and Chekhov plays and what have you. Is the the Greeks, everything was big, you know. So the Oedipus is dealing with a very big problem, right? (laughs) You know, he kills his father and marries his mother, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Another spoiler. So, you know, I mean, you know, (laughs) so... But that's what he does, everybody. He kills his father and he marries his mother, you know? And it's not in the metaphorical sense. He really does it. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, but that, you know, and, and, and for, the, for the many of the Greek plays, you know, that's the stakes, right? It's like that's, and he's a king to add to it. You know, he kills his father, you know, whatever. But anyway, so, so um, Sophocles is interested in things that we would all relate to to some degree, but he is doing it in this big grand stage. But as I say, 100 years later, you get to Chekhov, where Chekhov is like, well, you know, my story is going to be, it's going to be, the whole events are only going to last over the course of a few hours. It's going to be in one or two rooms. There's going to be like three people. And what's really at stake is, you know, what was served for dinner last night, you know, <laughs> or what, you know, in this beautiful way, but in through this discussion, I'm making that one up, but, but, you know, the discussion, you know, Chekhov is doing a lot of things like that. It is a very small domestic reality that is at stake. And through that, we see the emotions uh, and the relationships between the other people. So what I like about what you said is, is yes, I think that in, in Lincoln Highway there, are, and maybe in my work generally, there are these moments where these two things are meeting, where, where I want you to feel the stakes of, you know, that, that Sophocles is building into these huge moments. Yeah. But it's going to happen on a much smaller stage, as it were. And, and it, it isn't ma- a given how, whether that person will yes. fulfill. Absolutely. And, 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 and then, and you don't know, is this going to be a comic outcome or a tragic right. outcome right. in this one paragraph? Because is this person going to have the courage or the patience or the good-naturedness to do what this other person needs? Right. Or are they going to ignore it? Are they not going to hear it? Are they going to turn their back on it? Which would be a tragic thing under the circumstances. And there's nice drama in those little moments. But as I say, it's still that kind of grand 
drama of humanity, but yes, in a, in a, in a, in a small moment. Uh, on the nobility um, question here, I, I just kind of went through and grabbed a couple examples from different novels. In A Gentleman in Moscow, the Count inhabits this idea of a man must master his circumstances or otherwise be mastered by them. And then in Rules of Civility, there's so many different shapes and expressions of nobility. I I grabbed this one that Katie's father tells her at one point. One must be prepared to fight for one's simple pleasures and defend them against elegance and erudition and all manner of glamorous enticements. I got the... You know, I don't want to tell you what I thought about that. I'd like you to tell me what, <laughs> what, what is the Count saying as applied to what we're talking about? And then what is Katie's father saying that applies to what we're talking about? God. <laughs> what? You should submit the questions in advance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So, but that's the pleasure no, of no. this, I know, isn't it's it? The dr- it's the drama. It's the drama. <laughs> that's right. All right. So, yeah, we... Uh, Katie's father's great concern is that his daughter, who's obviously uh, very bright and uh, ambitious, that it will, it will take her away from uh, the simple pleasures that he sees as being at the center of, of a life well lived. That, that if, if you can appreciate simple pleasures, that, that says something about the fact that your life is in, in equilibrium in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, if your ambition is, is running away, nothing is satisfying to you. Maybe you could just, how does she come to understand that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I can tell you, I think a fact... <laughs> A factor is, and I don't know, I can't get the exact sequence, but I, but I, know, I know this is true, is that in Rules of Civility, um, she uh, has a very strong relationship, a connection with this gentleman named Tinker Gray, who, as it turns out, is not everything he seems, and she's sort of from a working class background, and he is uh, an aristocrat in, in sort of in the well-to-do sphere, and they have a, a very real connection. And, but as she learns more about him, she realizes that there's aspects of him that are, are not what they seem. And she uh, is furious about this, in essence, and, uh, and judges him quite harshly for this discovery. And uh, so they separate in a way, and she uh, is, is a young um, socialite named Dickie Vanderweil, uh, who's a little bit younger than her and who's very uh, carefree and, uh, and well-to-do and uh, lo- thinks she's great. And uh, so he pursues her. She's not interested. But then Tinker and Katie separate and, and Dickie has his opening. So he goes for it. And they're having a grand old time, Katie and Dickie. And Dickie can't believe his good fortune. And uh, what ends up happening is she has a moment where the, the two of them are together. She's, she's been shaken by a piece of information uh, that's beginning to make her rethink the way she's behaved towards Tinker. And Dickie finds her in a church in, in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, and they go out to the steps in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and they sit down. And, you know, he says, you know, so what's, what's going on? You've been avoiding me, and you're clearly upset. And, and she tells him the whole story. And he says, wow. And now what Dickie should do in this moment, tells the story of, of Tinker and his you know, misbehavior, his, his false front or what have you, 
And what Dickie should do in that moment is say, that's terrible. What a cad, you know? <laughs> Why don't you come on back to my place and we'll have a scotch and, you know, we'll put this behind us. That's what he should do. But what he does is he says, and, you know, and I remember very vividly in the outline of the book that that's kind of what he did say. And I got to the moment and I was like, you know, he wouldn't do that because Dickie's got a big heart. Mm-hmm. And Dickie says, you know, um, golly, I think you're being a little hard on this guy. Because, you know, the thing that he did, you know, I, I'm actually think he's very impressed in what he's done, how, how he's come as far as he's come and what he's overcome. And I'm not sure I would be able to do that. And I think you're being a little tough on it, you know, and, sh- and that really shakes her, you know. And, I, and that, as I say, that's one of those moments that, that the father would have yes. been worried about. I mean, the other, the other thing that I think the reader realizes is she's going to make a choice about whether to be noble and compassionate. Right. And that this will be an experience that is indelible in some ways. That's that right. That choice will be indelible yeah. in the person that she is. And that's what I meant about there's this, you know, she's on the the edge and I'm holding my breath thinking, is she going to do the right thing? This book could go a lot of different ways and I'll be with it no matter where it goes. But she made the right choice, she, yeah, the I noble think, choice. Yes, she did. <laughs> Why are you laughing about that? No, because I'm glad it worked out that way. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were laughing because, well, no. of course, because, no, you know. It could have gone either way, right? No, yeah. It could have. Sure. You're listening to Talking Volumes at the Fitzgerald Theater with author Amor Tolls. His new novel is titled The Lincoln Highway, and I'm Carrie Miller. Now we're going to get to your mother issues. Is is everybody ready? Yeah. No, you know what I want to talk about is um, this wonderfully tender relationship between these brothers. I want to talk about you conceiving um, what it means to be a brother and how much of that, I guess, is, I don't know, aspirational and how much of it is from your from your own experience. Wow. No, I have a very good relationship with my brother. <laughs> Do tell. Yeah. That's not what he says. No. no. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so no, I, 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 for me, um, you've got this whole tapestry of, of human experience, and, and part of writing novels is you're kind of working through it a little bit. And uh, so you know, Rules of Civility is one year in the life of a 25-year-old woman, and she was a single child, and uh, an aspect of that book is that almost all the characters are around 25 in age, and there are no children in the book, and there are no grown-ups in the book, like, except with, like, one exception, you know, because that's very much the life of 25-year-olds. They they don't want to spend time with kids or grandparents. They want to hang out with each other, you know, and and that's kind of what that book was, was sort of the culture of that book. In the case of a... So there were no, there were no parents or children, no, no siblings. Or really, it was really sort of the, it was about friends and acquaintances and how they influence each other. And gentlemen, in Moscow, you're with this individual for thirty years, and so he's an older guy going from thirty to sixty. And I knew that that book was going to be very much about familial relationships. His godfather, I mentioned, his grandmother is a big influence. His sister, who he held very dear and lost. Uh, and then this, this young woman, he's a young girl, he's asked to care for. 
And you have this, you know, 60-year-old or 50-year-old guy and a five-year-old daughter, and he's never been a parent, yet he has to play the role of parent suddenly, and and that that was going to be grow into something. And so familial relationships, which are absent from rules of civility, are a very big part of a gentleman in Moscow. So shifting to the Lincoln Highway, suddenly it's, you know, a bunch of 18-year-olds, as I said, and they have their own moment in life, you know, with, with its own implications. But a Right from the beginning, I had this, I, this notion of, yeah, this honorable kid, the, the, the hero, Emmett Watson, who's just come home from doing time and has lost his father and mother, is going to have an eight-year-old brother and, um, who's, who's a wonderful little guy. And, uh, and I just thought, you know, that's a great relationship to explore and is not in my other books. What is this sibling relationship? What, and, and, you know, and, and I like adding the time distance there between 18 and 8. Mm-hmm. Because then it's, it's, it is, it's, you're also it's a quasi-parent suddenly. You know, this 18-year-old has to be a parent. And, and you know, I love the 8-year-old ability to surprise. They're so much smarter than we think they are and so much wiser than we think they are. And, and so but the 18-year-old thinks naturally, not only Emmett, but all 18-year-olds, you know, where they think they're super wise, you know. So I like this sort of contrast of, of the way an 8-year-old sees the world and their kind of wisdom versus the 18-year-old's version of, of wisdom and, and, and seeing the world and sort of in a different light. And that, that, but yet this bond that was very unique and tight. And, uh, and so, so that's part of the fun, you know. So I think, I think as I say, at an, my leap right from the beginning of, oh yeah, there's going to be an 8-year-old brother and and he's going to be really sweet, but interesting. And he's going to have this book. And, and he's going to set everything in motion because right. of, some of, the, some of his instincts, some of his decisions. The older brother's going to think he's in charge, but the eight-year-old brother's going to start messing with that, <laughs> not intentionally, but just because he has his own vision of things. And, and, you know, and the 18-year-old's going to have to adapt, you know, and, and that that was going to be a thing. And as I say, I think that was an immediate in- instinct for me as I was imagining the story. And I think that's partly because... I hadn't had that relationship in the other books. And so it was fun to go and explore that kind of relationship, the sibling. And by the way, this book, you know, I I give my wife credit for this, Maggie, which is, um, you get this moment where you're kind of, the book, I was written the first draft. I'm not a sharer. So I write the first draft and I don't show it to anybody. I don't show it to my agent, my editor, or my wife. And I finish the first draft and then I give it to like seven people at the same time, including those three. And at that's the moment where I kind of asked myself, oh, I, I wonder who, I'm, who should I dedicate this book to? And, uh, and my wife was like, your brother and sister, you know. And I was like, oh, my God, you're right, you know, because I hadn't even, like, thought about that, you know. <laughs> Here's this book about siblings, you know. I'm going right. on and on and on about it, you know. And so, yeah, so it's, de- it's dedicated to my brother and sister, which, which, is, which is, makes a lot of sense. After your wife reminded you After my you wife reminded yes. It ought to be, right? And it, it should have said that on the dedication it page. Have. It should have been an asterisk, and it should have said uh, Maggie's idea, you know, whatever. Not really. You know what, it, the, the nature of their relationship made me wonder if you had read some of the newer research about how instrumental siblings are in the development of empathy and compassion as... I mean, some, some researchers would argue as much as parents. And, uh, I mean, yeah, you I just got this so right with the way what, you know, what the research is finding about this. 
I, I, that is not a research-based... Uh, uh, th- I have not read that. Okay. Um, but I, I think it's a cool observation, and I totally understand it and believe it. Mm-hmm. And I do think that uh, in my sphere, that 18 to 8-year-old thing I'm talking about, I definitely have witnessed in my life. You know, they, these characters are not based on anybody in my life, but, but you know, my siblings, you know, two and a half year, my brother's two and a half years older, my sister's two and a half years younger. And so... All siblings, there's certain things that we have in common, but but that stretched one, I've I've witnessed in other cases, mm-hmm. and, and and you see that the the way the emotional information moves back and forth right. in a very interesting not way. just one direction, no, definitely which is not. What you yeah, they inform yeah, each other because right. they're the different part of as a kind of as a version of what I was saying a second ago, but a different one. The emotional state that they're in, as opposed to the intellectual one, is is different, and the eighteen year old can can be enriched by kind of the memory of that 18-year-old emotional state right. and the way that the 8-year-old can be comforted by the, you know, the 8-year-old can be comforted by the 18-year-old's emotional state or, or, or you know, ushered through circumstances. So it is kind of, this, I think, a fascinating relationship. The other thing I was curious about was the friendship, male friendship, how yes. that looks so different than the way... Um, three or four women or young girls would would embark on this, even though Sally yeah. is yeah. a part of this. Yes. Um, I guess what? How would you describe the nature of the relationship, the friendship relationship among these boys? Uh, and I, and, I, and I'm, I'm I'm wary about you know placing it in in gender terms. It's, there's no question about it. this is a book that it tilts towards the relationship between three young men. There's For no question sure. about that. And Sally's yeah. in there, but it's these three young men. But I just mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I would... I could, or I could articulate in an intelligent and uh, supportable way what would be the difference between three female friendships and three male friendships, except in really shallow terms, you know? And, and uh, you know, I, kinda, I remember being in college and, and being very kind of aware of... The, in our larger group, the way that, you know, the 18-year-old men were behaving differently than the 18-year-old women, clearly. You and, think? And, and, yeah. And their friendships, their friendships were different. And, and, and yes, like the, the 18-year-old men, and this, yeah, I shouldn't even be saying this stuff, but, but here we go. But, you know, at the time, this was back then. It's not true anymore, <laughs> I'm sure. But, you know, the, 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 were the, the classic uh, cliches kind of held true in a broader sense, which is that, like, the 18-year-old guys, we just all got along. You know, we didn't, int- we didn't investigate our relationship. We didn't hold each other accountable. Now, where are you going with this? Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm saying, like, my female friends were much more uh, interested in, in knowing what is my relationship to you yes, as, that's as, right. as a fellow female and, uh, as a, you know, as a, uh, a girlfriend. And, you know... Uh, and are you going to be there for me when I need you? And, 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 and I, you weren't yesterday, and so I, I want to understand that and talk about it and tell you how I felt about it. And, and the guys were not doing that, you know? <laughs> and, and the guys were like, hey, you know, that's it. <laughs> but, but so, um, you know, that's right. that was the grand total of the, you know. <laughs> that's right. And, and it was so, there was something, you know, beautiful about both of these two different worlds. And again, this, may, this was me as an 18-year-old boy observing this in a very sexist fashion, but it, you know, it, having an, it, making an, it had an impression on me of the different ways in which people can be friends. You know, and at the time, it looked like boys versus girls, and it may not have been at all. It may just have been this group versus this group. Um, so so I, I do think that there are uh, different ways to be friends. So, oh, okay, yeah. well, let, let me just say this, though, because you've just pretty much articulated these friendships get tested in so many different ways. And That's as right. a woman reading it, I thought, if that were 
you know, three young women out on this kind of a an adventure, there'd be a lot of conversation about the testing and what this means and who we are and and the the boys don't do that, even though they're right. all aware that the friendship is being tested and sometimes to its limit. That's right, yeah. And that felt right to me in the case of yeah. the story. And, and, and that's partly because Emmett the hero is, is, is a reticent figure. I mean, he doesn't share openly what he thinks or feels generally. Right. And, uh, and we, we get glimpses of, of what's going on. Uh, you know, their, their mother left them when, when uh, Billy was born and Emmett was uh, you know, only 10 years old. And he does not really talk with his younger brother about his mother. Right. But he has very strong memories and feelings about her, some of which are resentment, of course, and, uh, and some of which are, are you know, a deep bond. And he's trying to be a protector to his brother. He's going to need to start their life, to get a job, to get them safely to another place, to you know, build a home together. So you know, again, I think he's, his instincts sort of fend off these sort of emotional investigations. And mm-hmm. so when I, you, then you have to kind of build that into the narrative and into the way he sees things, the way he talks, the way he interacts with others. And he also has a history of having a boiling point. And that got, that's what got him in trouble in the first time. So he's also he's promised his brother to manage the boiling point, not let that happen. And uh, so that's also there, too. As he's getting frustrated with his friend Duchess, he's constantly in the back of his mind remembering that I got super angry once and there were terrible repercussions. Right. And so, you know, he's trying to not do that, you know. Um, so you know, all those things are kind of there within the friendship and testing it, as you said. Right. I want to ask you about a couple of the things that I think you've talked about that um, that helped set the tone for you. You you actually have the postcards that pop up that yes. Billy Billy possesses these, yes. right? So what, what happens? And this, I'm not giving anything big away. This is because this is in the first chapter. Um, but when Emmett comes home and his the father has and has died. Um, and he's been released a little early from the work program because of his father's death. Um, Billy, the eight-year-old, the, the, and the brother says, listen, I think we should, we're going to leave, we're going to leave town. It's, we should leave town. And Billy says, yeah, I agree. And he says, well, we should, we're, I think we should go to Texas. And, and Emmett has a whole reason, a rationale for why they should go to Texas. And Billy says, no, 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 we've got to go to California, the eight-year-old. And, and Emmett's sort of patiently saying, well, you know, well, I don't think that's necessarily a good idea, Billy, and we should go to Texas. He says, no, 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 we, we have to go to California. <laughs> And then he explains, and what he says is that when he was, his neighbor sent him to go find his father's will and his, you know, the, the deed for the property and the personal papers, he discovers eight postcards that their mother wrote them in the, or nine postcards, excuse me, in the first nine days that she left them. So on the first day, she sends a postcard, and the second a postcard, and each of the nine is from further west along the Lincoln Highway this highway that goes from Times Square to San Francisco. And so, you know, it's from Oglala and from Rawlings and, you know, moving west into Sacramento and eventually San Francisco. And Billy's observation is she sent, he, she, she sent us these postcards because, in essence, this is a map that we can use to find her. She's in San Francisco. If we go to San Francisco, we'll find her. And, you know, Emma's like, well, listen, this is, these postcards are, you know, 10 years old, or 8 years old, excuse me, you know, we have no idea if she's even there. And he's like, no, no, that's why she sent them. You know, that's how we know she's there. It's because there were no more postcards. So that's his argument. Now, as I kind of came up with this notion that this would be kind of an end part of the, the, the narrative, I thought to myself, oh, you know, 
it'd be kind of interesting to see those postcards for me. And, you know, that's a great thing in the modern era. You're like, uh, old postcards? <laughs> you, know? you know, and it turns out, of course, there's a million people selling old postcards. And you go to the old postcard place and you say, Aglala 1954? You know? And there it is, you know? And so, so I started sifting through all these old postcards and, and buying them, you know, in the, in the secondary market, these postcards from, from the late 40s and early 50s, from along the Lincoln Highway, um, from these various towns. And... And, I, you know, I don't, I don't even know why I do that, right? And Because it's not, it doesn't play a big part in the story. But for me, it's, 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 it's nourishment to the tale somehow. And, and when Emmett receives them, I knew a kind of note to myself, yeah, he's going to, we're going to see the first two cards in, in detail. And I was like, yeah, well, they might as well be real cards. So I ordered a bunch of cards. They come, I choose the eight. And the first two postcards that you hear him describing in his head I own those two cards, wow. you know, and yeah, so, cool. so so they're like kind of this weird, like an archaeologist finding something from the past, and you know, and it kind of has its own energy to it that you get to steal or co-opt as as the author and kind of try to put into the book, you know. One of the things that people sell are postcards that were actually written by people long ago. I mean, are the postcards you have, oh, yeah, do they mo- have writing on them? More than half have the actual really? writing on them, sure. How much time uh, now, did you spend? I did not. I didn't. I did not. I should have. I didn't. I didn't use the. But yeah. No. But how much time did you go through reading the little notes that I, people? I, really, I didn't. Wow. Isn't that so weird? You're right because it seems like exactly what I should do and what I would have done. <laughs> and it's what I'm going to do as soon as I get home on Friday. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> no. I right. You also built a soundtrack. That we were talking about yeah. downstairs, yes. which, oh my gosh, you introduced me to some great new music. Do you do this for the novels as well, a as a? It is sort of weird. The, the soundtrack that, that uh, is being described is a little weird because I, I did it for uh, Rules of Civility, for the fun of it. And, of course, it was the jazz sound of the late 30s and early 40s, which... Katie is actually very much involved in. She's going to uh, sort of pre-bebop jazz clubs in the course of the novel. And so the big band sound is happening out in this glittering New York of the late 30s at the end of the Depression, and yet the new small quintet moody bebop thing is just on the, on the horizon. And so so I, I made a playlist about that. Um, I didn't listen to all that music while I was writing the book, but it's a part of the book. I know that music. Uh, in A Gentleman in Moscow... Uh, Sort of Russian sentimental classic music or you know, highly emotional music is is loved by the count and plays a part of the of the story. Uh, Rachmaninoff is is discussed uh, for sure. Um, uh, the Nutcracker is discussed and loved by the count and, uh, greatly. Chopin is discussed, not a Russian, but uh, and so the that was the playlist that I made for a gentleman in Moscow. And, uh, but again, it wasn't necessarily the music that I listened to while I was writing the book. When I got to the Lincoln Highway, there isn't really music running through the narrative. And, right. and there isn't obvious music to use. And so I, I was sort of like, oh, maybe I'm not going to do a playlist. And then I thought, well, actually, maybe what I'll share is the music that I listened to while I was writing the book. Because I do do that. So I, I will, as I'm writing the book, I will find certain music that I will build, you know, you say four hours of music, and I will listen to it every day, day after day after day after day, and, and I'll tinker with it over time. And because of, for whatever reason, that playlist sort of gets me in the mood to write this story. Wow. You know? And so it's hmm. not from the era. It's not 
doesn't, it's not about the, but, but somehow it has the essence of it. And so one of them is, 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 is this, a local band called Trampled by Turtles. Um, yeah. You know, it's awesome. But, awesome. And, you know, and one, if you don't know them, the, you know, the Bonnie Light Horseman is this amazing oh, record, yes. amazing, beautiful record. Uh, and, and what they kind of share is uh, they're very spare, and, but, and they feel very American uh, in terms of... And the Fleet, Fleet, uh, the Fleet Foxes is one of the bands that I use here. And there's something about the... It's very emotional music. It's a little bittersweet, and it's, it's very spare. You get the sense of small towns in some of these songs or of... Of you know uh, of people in it's not city music somehow you know so anyway so all this stuff sort of uh, influenced me and and I play it in the background as I write and and and, and then I listen to it like over and over and over and over. What I thought as I clicked through and listened to the music, there was a there was just this impression of absence to me in the music. I mean, you what did you just say that it's not yes. city music? It's yeah. not busy. Yes. It felt like there could be silence in this music, and then I would be kind of filling it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's exactly what I was trying to say. That's another way of putting it. I think that's exactly right. There's sort of a canvas of silence behind it uh, right. in that music, and that is right. perfect for this narrative, I think. Right. You know, Stephen King, I've never forgotten this, Stephen King sat here on the stage and said that he listens to screaming metal music. Which is amazing. That's crazy. Wait, you've right. heard that before? I have, and, and which I, I can't imagine doing that. That would be very disorienting. So, <laughs> isn't that weird? So, when you have completed the novel, is, I mean, is the soundtrack pretty much finished? I, yeah, it's an, I've listened to it a lot. <laughs> So I do listen to it again over time, but it's not like I'll use it for the next book. You know, I'll go okay. out and I'll build a different kind of music so that it feels fresh at the beginning of the process of writing the next book, and, and that makes it sort of more interesting to me as I play it every day. But I, but I will love these songs forever, you know, okay. for sure. Yeah, they will have a real emotional yeah, memory they, absolutely. for you. Absolutely. I, I'm curious about one other thing. Do you read specific work while you're writing or is most of that done kind of heading into the experience of writing what i do is uh very often is leading up to writing the book so while i'm still designing it and thinking about it and outlining it i like to go and read some novels that were written at the time and ideally set at the time that i'm going to work in and so in the case of the lincoln highway which takes place in june 1954 for 10 days I went and read um, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain and uh, Sloan Wilson's uh, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit and Flannery O'Connor's uh, Good Man is Hard to Find and Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye. Um, but what I love about reading those four books that was very informative to me is, I mean, of course, part of the reason I'm reading it is, is to kind of to get myself in the mood of the times. Mm-hmm and to get a little sense of the landscape of the times. But what's interesting about those four books is that, you know, Baldwin's writing about Harlem, uh, you know, Flannery O'Connor's writing about the Deep South and these, you know, morally ambiguous, you know, rough tales. Uh, um, Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye is kind of his greatest work. It's late in his career, late in the life of Philip Marlowe's as a character, and it's one of, I think it's his longest book. It's his most psychological, but it's in L.A., of course. 
And, uh, and then you have uh, the Sloan Wilson book, which was very popular and big in the 50s, uh, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, which was about the, the boys who returned from the Second World War, finished their degrees, and ended up like working in gray suits with fedoras and riding the train from Greenwich, Connecticut to Midtown Manhattan and having a you know, martini with their wives every night, but secretly living lives that were not somehow f- full. And uh, you know, he's, it's, it's a huge precursor to Matt Wiener's Mad Men, you know, for wow. sure. Hmm. And, uh, and so, so, as I say, these four books written at the, you know, at the, all very American masterpieces, all coming out at the same time, totally different versions of America with a very different narrative tone. So what I love about that is, is having said that, I read these things to inform me. It wasn't like, oh, these four books sound the same and I'm going to sound that way too. It. It's the yeah. opposite. These books sound totally different. And so somehow I have to create something which is also going to sound very different, but is in harmony with this America of this moment. You know? So did Willa Cather's work figure in at all so to this? I'm, we're, I'm in a book group, as, as we were talking about earlier, and uh, we read projects. And uh, not long ago, we, uh, we read a series of Willa Cather books. I had never read Cather at all. And uh, so, and I was already in the process of designing this book. And when I opened up O Pioneers, and she opens it with this poem about, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the rough landscape, the rough and beautiful and demanding landscape of the Midwest. Uh, and, but she kind of ends it. Uh, and I think the last sentence is, against all this, you know, this this list of all these things which are both beautiful and challenging, like the weather and the sky and the soil and the the work and all these things. But in the last sentence is, against all this youth. And I was like, wow, you know? And that was like a gift. Because I was like, I'm about to write that book. (laughs) So so that poem is the, it's her epigraph, and then a portion of that poem, she wrote a poem and uses the epigraph of O Pioneers. I took a portion of that and used the epigraph of of the Lincoln Highway, which was nice because obviously she's from there and wrote about Nebraska. Right, right. We've been listening to my Talking Volumes conversation with Amor Tolls. That music you're hearing is Widower's Heart by Trampled by Turtles, one of the songs that Tolls added to the soundtrack for his latest novel, The Lincoln Highway. There's one final live event on November 3rd to close out the fall 2021 Talking Volumes season. It's William Kent Kruger. He'll join me at the Fitzgerald Theater. And you can find out more about the event and revisit previous Talking Volumes conversations by heading to nprevents.org. Maybe I'm better off and maybe it's hard to tell When I left you were sleeping through trumpets and-